Hey, glad you could join us today on RK Ministries podcast, where each week we engage culture with biblical truth by sharing a message of truth and hope from a biblical perspective. Like the podcast, share the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, find us on Facebook and Twitter, and hope that you enjoy today as you join us on this episode of RK Ministries podcast. Well, good evening, everybody, or afternoon, rather. And with the daylight saving times, maybe it is evening. It just looks like afternoon outside. So we have come to, once again, to Theology Thursday. And uh, just want to spend some time answering some questions on Theology Thursdays. Today we're going to deal with two topics. One is a question that was sent to me. The other is a topic that I think we just need to deal with. Because uh, it relates to the Southern Baptist Convention and what is coming up in um, just a few months, well, in a month or a few weeks, really, uh, as we go to Louisiana for the convention this year. And so we're talking about Rick Warren and his uh, three proof text. He, he says in his interview four, but three only come out uh, for why it is that women should be allowed to be ordained uh, in the office of what we call in Southern Baptist roles, pastor, but how the Bible terms it, elder, bishop, uh, so we'll talk about those two things. And just as always, we'll put this on our podcast, RK Ministries. Uh, and you can find that uh, wherever podcasts are found. And I encourage you to go and find that and like it and subscribe to it. And then share it with your family and your friends. So that we can continue to grow the audience and be able to uh, spread the good news of the gospel and speak truth to era in this uh, world in which we live in. So with, with that said, first uh, we'll talk about the issue of Adam and Eve and really just uh, go, going without any notes today. So we'll just uh, off the top of my head give you my impressions on the question. The question is, uh, did Adam and Eve ask for forgiveness and maybe an underlying question that is related to that is were they given forgiveness and then the secondary question had to do with whether or not adam or how did adam and eve know uh about sacrificing and offering sacrifices to the lord we see that with cain and abel so uh, just briefly to give you briefly to give you my thoughts on adam and eve and forgiveness uh, obviously, what happened in the garden was what we have termed before in our dealing with uh, sin, the, uh, the idea of inherited sin. Uh, theologians throughout history have called it the original sin. Uh, Wayne Groom used the terminology inherited sin in his systematic theology, which I think is uh, really more appropriate because the original sin was Satan himself, Isaiah 14. Uh, and so Satan in that way committed the original sin and then Satan tempted uh, Adam, tempted Eve and specifically uh, with the fruit that was on the tree that was forbidden for them. And so the sin that was committed in the Garden of Eden by Adam and Eve uh, was a sin that caused all of humanity to inherit evil. Now, did Adam and Eve, in light of that, because their nature was corrupted after that point and God pronounced the curse on uh, humanity and man uh, on, on the earth <clears throat> and on the, the serpent in Genesis chapter 3 and... Uh, so, 
we know God kicked them out of the garden and he put a big, uh, you know, angel with a fiery sword there to prevent them from being able to enter back into uh, the garden of Eden. Uh, lest, I guess, they continue to eat of that particular tree. Now, part of what happened in that in that uh, the the garden with the sin, the prohibition that God had given them was, "Do not eat of the tree that's in the midst of the garden." Right, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He says, "In in the day that you eat it, you will surely die." And so that's where that's one of the things that Satan used to uh, lure them. Will you surely die? You know, is it is it really harmful to you in that way? Will it not enlighten your eyes, and you'll become like God in that in that knowledge? And so the the prohibition was: do not eat. The result or the penalty was death. Now, most theologians, students of the Bible, would understand that that death had two aspects to it. One, spiritual death in, in the sense that uh, their spirit no longer had that perfect, unfettered communion with God because of that sinfulness in there. Hence, what God demonstrated to them, I believe, in walking uh, in the cool of the day in that narrative as we read. And, and he, God, raised the question, Adam, where are you? And it wasn't that God didn't know where Adam was. It was that Adam was hiding from God because of his sinfulness. And so in some way, that may be a picture of that separation that had taken place from that relationship that they had had with God in the Garden uh, of Eden. And But after that, <clears throat> God didn't strike them dead in that day. They didn't die immediately, which would have been God's justified uh, right to do. But God spared them. It's not until chapter 5 in Genesis, really, that we see Adam and Eve and his descendants uh, uh, begin to die. In, in, in chapter 5, we, con we continue to read that refrain. You know, Adam begot so many children. He lived so many years, and he begot more children, and then Adam died. And we hear that refrain over and over again that this person lived, had children, he died. And so chapter 5 is the, the reality uh, of that uh, punishment that God said would come from this sin, this sinful act of Adam and Eve in the garden. So I think one thing, at least to me, and again, what, what, whatever I'm telling you today is going to be conjecture because the Bible didn't come right out. I can't take you to scripture in verse and say that, hey, here's where it says, at least that I'm aware of. If you, you have something, feel free to share it with me. But uh, it's going to be conjecture, you're right, uh, reading between the lines, if you will, a bit. Um, because one of the things I think that shows that God offered at least, at least forgiveness and that they received forgiveness and mercy was one, he didn't strike them dead in that moment. So in that sense, he exercised mercy uh, upon them, not giving them what they deserved. And then secondly, uh, the Lord, as we, as you know, the narrative, right? They, they were naked they knew they were naked. That's why they were hiding. And that was one of the questions God asked them. Well, how do you know that you're naked? And, you know, did you eat of this tree? And of course, God already knew that they ate of the tree. It wasn't that he didn't. He was, he was coaxing this out of Adam and Eve. 
and Adam and Adam, yes, you know, obviously they did eat. He, of course, Adam had to blame the woman. You know, hey, the, it's it's the woman that you gave me uh, that uh, tempted me, and I did eat at, because she tempted me, and you gave her to me. You know, that's the implication. Uh, and then Eve followed suit. It was that serpent that came and tempted me, and so I did. <clears throat> I did eat, uh, but. In that narrative, one of the things that God did for them is that God uh, clothed them. Now, I don't think we need to press too hard on that portion of Scripture. Obviously, uh, God, in clothing them with animal skin, because they tried to cover their own nakedness, their own, um, in a way, their own sinfulness, right? They tried to cover it with, with the leaves that they had made clothes out of. Uh, but God killed the animal this impl- is implied in the scripture, right? It's not, it doesn't come blatantly out and say that God sacrificed an animal to make skins. But in order to get the skins, you you know generally have to kill the animal to get the skins. So you have to shed the animal's blood. And there are those who make sermons out of that text and talk about the sim you know the symbology or typology that relates to this idea of God sacrificing the animal shedding the blood and making the skins to cover the sin that they couldn't cover it themselves so God did what they could not do and covered their sin in that way through the shedding of blood and making these animal skins for them so you can see I guess you could make an argument of the typology of uh, forgiveness and redemption in, in, in light of that. <clears throat> and I think there's some validity to that. We just want to, don't want to press too hard on that uh, and say that I'm going to be dogmatic at that point about it uh, because the Bible is not explicit there. Okay, But the implication, I think, is there. And so I think there's room for that idea that in that aspect god did show them mercy god did show them you know grace and and they did receive god's forgiveness now did they ask for it outright i have no idea the bible doesn't say that they did or they didn't but how god responded uh, seems to indicate that god gave them uh, forgiveness and god gave them grace and god gave them mercy and after all uh, isn't that what salvation really is it's god giving to us uh, what we do not deserve. There's nothing meritorious in us that can cause us to gain God's favor or to find ourselves saved and justified before holy God. It's, it's the work of God in our life through Christ Jesus, as we look back from a New Testament perspective. And this was obviously pointing toward, I think, uh, the fulfillment of what God was going to do in redemptive history with Christ Jesus. And you can couple that with what we see in Genesis chapter 3 again, when God's meeting out this curse uh, on the earth and talking about the woman and the pain she'll have in childbearing. He talks about the serpent and he's going to crawl on his belly uh, for uh, the rest of his days. And he's going to put enmity between the, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. The, seed, the serpent's going to bruise the heel of the woman's seed but the woman's seed will bruise the heel or the head rather of the serpent and of course most theologians look toward the cross and the coming of messiah for the fulfillment of that uh, in most theologians again call that the proto euangelion uh, the, the the seed of the gospel and that everything after that 
section of scripture in Genesis as the unfolding of God's redemptive plan in history. So in that sense, I think that God did give them uh, forgiveness and grace and mercy uh, in, in how he treated them. And then God, again, he gave them a mission, right? That they were to continue to multiply and replenish the earth. And they were to uh, tend to the earth, the garden that's in the earth and have submission over the animals and those kinds of things. Uh, so in that sense, you can see that God still uh, used them and uh, brought about glory to his name through them. And God even gave them other children or gave them children rather um, so that that this message of the gospel, this promise that God had made in Genesis chapter three could ultimately be fulfilled beginning with the obedience of Adam and Eve. So we see them obeying the Lord after that. And then that leads to, I guess, the idea of the sacrifice, because we really see that in, uh, at least in my recollection, we really, we re that's the only time we see that other than when God makes the clothes for them is with Cain and Abel. And this is what caused the rift between, uh, I say between Cain and Abel, this is what makes Cain mad at Abel uh, because of how God uh, accepts the sacrifice of uh, Abel over Cain. And so Abel, you, if you remember that portion of scripture, he offered a sacrifice to the Lord and it was an animal sacrifice. He was a tender uh, of sheep. So he offered of his, you know, the first of his flock, the best of his flock uh, as an offering and a sacrifice to the Lord. And, and uh, um, okay. Uh, Abel, Cain and Abel. Cain was, uh, he was a farmer, and so he, he uh, sowed crops, and he offered a sac uh, sacrifice to the Lord of the first fruits of his produce. And now, in and of itself, I don't think that either one of those offerings were necessarily uh, wrong before the Lord, because Again, one of the other premises to this question was, how did they know about sacrifices? Because they did not have the law. The law was not given at this particular time to specify uh, the idea of how Israel would live in a theocracy with God and, and enter into uh, this covenant relationship, which included the sacrificial system, which again was pointing to the ultimate redemptive work that was going to take place in Jesus Christ. And I get it. They didn't have the law. You know, you could go to, to, I think it's Joel that says, you know, that the Lord's going to write his law on our hearts and those kinds of things. And that God's given us a conscience and that kind of stuff. And, and in that conscience is inherit some of the moral aspects of the law. But I think it's a long stretch to go uh, to try to uh, make the claim that, Hey, they would have known about this because of their conscience or because God had, 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 prophesied that he was going to write the law on their <clears throat> on their hearts and so again the only thing i can give you is conjecture uh, i think uh, i don't know if i made my point on the offerings because god, god uh, you know later on as it relates to produce talks about offering first fruits offerings in the old testament and so that would have been a, a grain offering or a part of the you know 
produce of your sowing and reaping would have been given to the Lord. So I don't know that it was necessarily inherently evil and wrong that Cain offered that type of offering to the Lord as opposed to Abel's offering the animal sacrifice. Now I know there are those who preached sermons based on that scenario and they would make the claim of the better offering because of the blood sacrifice and we know in other places in the Bible without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins I know I get it you know you can see the typology there but you got to be careful with typology in the Old Testament you know unless the the Bible expressly uh, teaches us that those things are, are to be considered as types for for Christ we need to be careful imposing them upon uh, Christ but I get it. You can see that because we know where this is going because we've read the rest of the book, right? We've read the entire uh, Old Testament, and we call it the Hebrew Scripture, and the, the New Testament that was written in the first century uh, by the apostles. And so, um, again, I don't think it was, it was the sacrifice that was really the issue. It was the attitude of the heart that was the issue. And we learned that over from the author of Hebrews, right? It was because of Abel's faith that he offered the better sacrifice. So uh, I just wanted to get that aired, that part aired out. Uh, and so, uh, so it was a matter of the heart as to why God uh, received one sacrifice rather than the other. And we see elements of that throughout the Old Testament, right? That's, that's God talks about that. Uh, he loves obedience rather, better, rather than sacrifice in places. And so it has to do with this idea. Uh, it's always about a heart. It's always about the heart issue. But how do they know to offer sacrifice? And the only explanation I can give you is... One, that they saw what God, or at least Adam and Eve told them what God did for them in the Garden of Eden. And so maybe that impressed upon them this idea of a sacrifice. Or, you know, maybe God impressed upon uh, Adam and Eve or told Adam and Eve at some point, you know, we have that one passage in Genesis where the Lord walked with them in the cool of the day leading up to uh, this curse being pronounced because of the sin. But whenever God spoke, they recognized his name so or recognized his voice. So uh, my conjecture has always been that they must have heard it before if they recognize it. Now, that doesn't mean that God would not make himself known in that one time to them, but it seems as though this was something that had happened before where God had communed with them in the cool of the day or a particular time. And so maybe in those times, because we don't know what the distance is, the time frame is really from the time God gave the commandment to when uh, they broke that commandment not to eat of that particular tree. So there could have been time. And how long How long does it take for God to tell you something, right? No, not too long. It might take longer for us to, to hear and obey and obey or hear and understand. But, uh, you know, God could have in one day, in one sitting, told them what he needed them to know as it related to uh, their relationship to him. So my, you know, again, my conjecture, my speculation is that in some way, God impressed upon Adam and Eve 
that this was something that they ought to do on a periodic basis as a way of showing honor and glory to him for his blessing upon them as it relates to him giving them, you know, uh, offspring in their flock and for him uh, giving them fruit from their labor as they worked the ground. And I think we see that reflected in the life of Israel and other places in the scripture and even today in, in uh, the New Testament uh, covenant people uh, of God. And so I don't think it's beyond God to have shown them that or at least taught them that. And then Adam and Eve would have ha- would have been the ones who had passed it on to their children uh, and shared it with them. And so that, that's my answer to the question. Yes, I think that God showed Adam and Eve forgiveness. Uh, and whether they asked for it or not, I don't know. Uh, I know that God showed it to them and God gave them mercy and God gave them grace because uh, he could have killed them and the moment they bit, they bit of that forbidden fruit from that forbidden tree, but he didn't. And he made clothes for them and he still gave them a mission and uh, a job to do in this world as related to redemptive history. Because everything that happened after that with Seth and, you know, the descendants that follow after him that carry on this line of the promise uh, started with Adam and Eve. Now, does that mean that God couldn't have done that if he didn't give them forgiveness? No, he could have. He could have, you know, not forgiven them and he could have started over if he wanted to. But he already had a plan that he had decided before the foundation of the world. And uh, even if Adam and Eve did not receive forgiveness and grace and mercy from him, he still could have used them to accomplish his plan. He does it all the time with uh, pagan kings and and, uh, pagan people. He uses them in spite of themselves to accomplish his uh, ultimate will and plan in this world. So uh, I think that he he did give give it to them and he demonstrated that in the ways that I have mentioned already. If you have more questions on that uh, particular subject or anything about Adam and Eve and creation and that kind of stuff, I'd be happy to entertain those questions as well as we continue this Theology Thursday aspect. And so now I wanted to turn my attention to something that's really, uh, um, I guess, prescient in uh, Southern Baptist circles, and that's the issue of women pastors women being ordained as pastors and i don't know if if you're southern baptist you may have been keeping up with this if you're not southern baptist then uh, i think it was in anaheim that this was ultimately brought up because anaheim california last year's convention um because of what had happened And, and it's not the first time it's ever been brought up but this is one of the times that action has been requested and the issue was brought up before the convention, the annual convention in Anaheim dealing with Saddleback churches. They had ordained several women as pastors, not, and again, the language, you know, and sometimes the folks who argue this want to make it a semantic kind of thing. Um, the, the language we use in Southern Baptist circles and, and most evangelical churches today, with, with, a, with some exception, is pastors. We, we call our, uh, the, the folks who are ordained to lead the flock, the under-shepherd of the flock, we call them pastors. Now, the Bible uses the term bishops and elders for those with the exception of when you go to uh, Acts chapter 4, it talks about pastors, teachers. And again, I, I think 
I have come to believe, I put it this way, that that is a function, the pastor teacher is a function of the elder bishop uh, position, if you will. And so sometimes it does become a, a semantics issue because we don't all use the same language the same way. But when it comes to Southern Baptist circles, we know exactly what a pastor is. A pastor is, and you can look at it different ways depending on how your church is set up. If you have a small church like like we that like I pastor, uh, you know, I guess technically I would be called the lead or senior pastor or lead pastor of Friendship Baptist Church because I'm the the only ordained pastor on staff at Friendship Baptist Church. Okay. And there are other churches that are larger and they have multiple staff. And so you have a senior pastor, you have a pastor of worship, you have a pastor of, you know, finance, administration, a pastor for youth, a pastor for children. And you just go on down the list of all the different ways that pastors are called. And typically, historically, if anyone served in the role of pastor, it would have been a man who was duly ordained by the church uh, or a church in good standing uh, that would fill that role, whatever role that may be. And that, again, I'm talking in Southern Baptist circles, but that's not necessarily the case in every church because other churches and other denominations, you know, they, they may do differently, but there is a standard and we'll get to that in a moment. But for Southern Baptists, the standard has been, you know, Timothy and Paul's letter to Timothy. And that letter, it talks about for elders, for uh, overseers, for bishops, whatever term you want to use. They're really synonymous, I believe, um, that that is a position for a male. And there are other requirements that go along with that. That's the one that's in question right now. But this one has to be one who uh, has manages his household well. Is not a novice. Is not a, a drunkard, right? And not given over to uh, filthy lucre or, or is not greedy for, for gain and those kinds of things. And uh, it's one that's been proven, if you will, uh, through time. And so uh, there, there are all those qualifications there. And one of those qualifications and the language that is used in, in Timothy's uh, or the, the letter that Paul writes to Timothy there has to do with uh, uh, quite the husband of one wife, depending on the translation you look for or you have. Uh, in some of the modern translations or some people translate it in this way, uh, a one woman man. And again, that gets to the issue uh, latent in all of this is the issue of whether or not a, a man who has been divorced can fulfill this role or does this man have to be married to fulfill this role? Those are other uh, side issues that we can deal with on another day. But the implication of the text is that it is a male who is to fulfill this particular office uh, for the church. And then you have the similar similar guidelines or, or qualifications for deacons that are there as well. And so in Southern Baptist circles, according to the Southern Baptist uh, faith and message, uh, it is uh, a male who is to be 
the to fulfill that office in in the Southern Baptist faith and message. He calls it the office of of pastor. I can't remember if it's senior pastor or what it says in there, but it's office of pastor uh, in the church. And so that, that's really the issue here because Saddleback, and, and there's a couple other churches, Saddleback was ultimately, after last year, Saddleback this year, early on, the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention uh, made the recommendation to uh, disassociate, if you will, uh, with uh, Saddleback Baptist Church, which is really probably the largest uh, church in the Southern Baptist Convention, um, formerly pastored by Rick Warren, no longer so. There's two. There's there's a there's a husband and wife pastor team now that are the senior or lead pastors, if you will, and they have several other people who are on staff that t- hold that role or office or title as pastor. And some of those have been women who have been ordained into those particular roles as as pastor. And and I think for me that that's where that's where the line is is crossed when when women are ordained to hold this office as pastor with the intent of them being those who fulfill this office uh, as described by Timothy and so <coughs> over the years you know Warren has Rick Warren has done some good things I think uh, some things I don't agree with, you know, when I first went to uh, Bible college, one of the primary books that you read uh, in Bible college as it relates to missions and church growth and those kinds of things was Purpose Driven Church, which Rick, jo- Rick Warren wrote and was the guideline, really what it was, the contents of it were the guidelines that he used to uh, plant and uh, function and operate uh, Saddleback uh, Church. And that permeated the 80s. Um, and, and later, uh, as far as the one of these standards and, and countless, he talks about it ad nauseum all the time of how many pastors he has trained and sent out and those kinds of things. And, and that's wonderful and good that you're sending out people to proclaim the gospel and to plant churches and start those kinds of ministries because the gospel is paramount. But uh, that has nothing to do with the legitimacy of the claims that he is now making as it relates to who should fill those roles as pastor. And so for the longest time, he was like uh, most every Southern Baptist. He held to this issue, the, the um, orthodox way, I call it the orthodox understanding that men should hold the office of pastor. Um, and that while women could not hold that office, that they are very valuable in the kingdom of God. They're very important in the ministry of the God. They have skills and talents and abilities. They can teach. They can lead. They can do all those all those things, just not in the function of elder, bishop, pastor, and and who hold those or those offices who are ordained for those offices biblically. And so, anyway, not to belabor this too much. Um, here, here's Rig Warren had a an interview with. Um, Oh man, uh, hold on a minute. He'll come to my mind. My little man, my little man lost the sticky note that had his uh, had his name on there. There's a former uh, Moore. Uh, I can't think of his first name right now. His last name is Moore. He was the former head of the ELRC, uh, which is the um, 
um, ethics and religious committee of the Southern Baptist Convention. Oh, man, I wish I could think of his first name right this minute. Uh, somebody's probably shouting it at me if they know it uh, right now. But anyway, it'll come to me, and eventually that little man in my head will find that sticky note uh, that had Russell. There it is. He just found it. Russell Moore. Uh, he, had an, he had an interview, Rick Warren did, with Russell Moore talking about this issue because of what the Southern Baptist had, has done uh, in, in light of these women pastors in their in, in the church now. And so Rick Warren says that, hey, they're, they're, they're after study of the Bible, you know, many years of studying the Bible. Uh, there are these three passages that uh, he says after he went back to them with a fresh set of eyes. I'm just paraphrasing the interview with a fresh set of eyes, maybe uh, would be the way to describe it, that the Lord uh, convinced him that uh, these are some of the verses that uh, validate this idea that women can be ordained and hold the role of, as Southern Baptists say it, pastors. But don't, don't lose sight of what that means. It means elder, bishop uh in 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 that sense uh, a biblical sense and so the passages that he used he said in the interview he says he has four and, and i didn't take time to get the the link for you but you can go you can go google it i'm sure if you're on twitter you can probably find it uh just look for russell moore and rick warren an interview dealing with uh women pastors i'm i guarantee you you'll find it and so he uses, uh, he says he has four proof texts. Three of them are all that uh, he gave in the short part of the interview that I heard or listened to. And in an article I read related to that, there were only three passages that he gave. There, there was a fourth one that is a parallel passage that he used related to Acts chapter two. Uh, so that may be the fourth one that they were talking about, that he was talking about in that interview but one of those passages that he used uh to validate this idea that women can be ordained as uh pastors and hold that office in the church is the great commission uh matthew 18 or excuse me matthew 28 18 through um 28 18 through 20 uh you know jesus stands at the you know right before he is uh um, ascends into heaven and he shares with his disciples uh, all authority has been given to me on heaven and in, er in heaven and on earth go therefore and make disciples baptizing them in the name of the father son and the holy spirit and it says make disciples of all peoples all nations pantata ethnos all people groups all ethnic groups and uh, the baptizing them teaching them to observe all things that i've commanded you and lo i'm with you until uh, the end of the age. And so he says in that scripture is inherent this idea that this is not just talking about men doing this, that women were called to do this as well because there was a mixed company that were there of disciples. And hey, he is a 100% right that the Great Commission is for every Christian, not just men, uh, not just women, for, but for every Christian. Uh, every person born again should take heed to the Great Commission that we have been called to make disciples. Now, he says in that passage that there are four verbs in that passage, and all of those verbs were given as commands to both men and women. Now, not to be too nitpicky, okay? 
but there's really only one verb in, in verses 19 through 20, the, 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 the Great Commission outright, uh, go therefore and make disciples of all people groups, baptizing them, you know, what we just quoted. There really only, 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 there's only one verb, and that verb is make disciples. That's the only verb in, that, uh, in those two verses. The others are participles. Uh, go is a participle. Baptize is a participle. Teaching is a participle. The only verb is make disciples. So if you're going to state it, state it correctly. Now, I get it. There are times when participles are used in, in, as an imperative uh, in Scripture. We, we run into that at times in Paul's writing in the book of Romans. I've mentioned that just recently from uh, passages of Scripture we've been dealing with in Romans as it relates to Paul. And maybe there is an argument that there are there's some imperatival thrust as it relates to these participles. But the reality is, I think that the Lord is saying our mission, our commission with the authority that he has given us from heaven and earth is for us to make disciples. And so what does it look like to make disciples? It looks like as we are going participle all right as an active i'm pretty sure that was an active voice as an active participle as we are going we are to make disciples and part of that making disciples is baptizing people when they come into faith with jesus christ and then teaching them and so the implication is if we're going to baptize people that means they have they have come to faith in christ which means the gospel has been shared with them and they understand the gospel of Jesus Christ and they've bowed the knee to Christ in submission to him. They've repented and placed their faith in him as Jesus said in Matthew chapter one, or excuse me, Mark chapter one, repent uh, and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then we follow through with our process of making disciples by bringing them into the fellowship of the family, baptizing them and then teaching them to be obedient to this Christ that they have followed teaching them the commandments that Christ has given them. And he's correct. That's for every believer. That's not just for men. But that passage has nothing to do with the office of pastor or bishop or elder when Paul describes that to Timothy as it relates to leadership in the church. It is quite explicit in that passage from Paul to Timothy that that role of pastor should only be held by men who have been proven and tested, if you will, and whom the church sees as those that God has called to be in that particular place position. And so it has not this like apples and oranges. It has nothing to do. One has nothing to do with the other in that sense. Now, yes, every believer ought to be making disciples and Hey, I'm not even opposed to fathers who are not, uh, uh, necessarily ordained baptizing their children when they come to faith or baptizing their wife when they come to faith. And again, you know, maybe you can make an argument that it was it would be okay for women to baptize in that way. I don't think there's any explicit scripture uh, in the Bible that says that the only people who can baptize 
uh, are those who hold the office of elder or bishop. Uh, so, and again, that may be a discussion we want to have at a later, a later date, but I hope you see that what he's doing is he's, he's comparing apples to oranges and trying to make an argument, uh, that this validates this idea that women can hold office of, of pastor or elder or bishop. And then the second text what that he used, and again, we won't read it, read it, read it necessarily, but it's in Acts chapter 2. And you, you, if you're a Christian, you know the Bible, you, you know what goes on in Acts chapter 2. Ultimately, he's, he's bringing out the aspect of the day of Pentecost um, because Jesus had told his disciples to go uh, and wait in this upper room until the promise come. And the promise was the coming of the Holy Spirit um, to fill those who were his believers and his disciples disciples and so they did they went and they were praying and the holy spirit fell upon them the bible talks about uh seeing uh tongues of fire uh over their heads and they were speaking in uh different languages really the implication the bible says that uh, that the people who were there uh, began to hear them in their own languages because there were people from all over the place, all over the region from different areas who spoke different languages. They could hear those people uh, who were from a particular region speaking to them in their own language. And so it was as much a gift of speaking as it was of hearing in that day. And they, it, it was so uh, astonishing to them, they thought that the people were drunk. And that's when Peter gets up and say, no, these these people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only, you know, it's still morning. It's, it's, it's too early for them to have uh, uh, succumbed to uh, alcohol and, and be out of their mind, if you will. And his argument there is that this was both men, men and women who were doing this because there were both men and women in the upper room, both men and women who were di- disciples, the same thing uh, that he was talking about in relation to the, the the Great Commission. And rightly so. There were men and women in that that upper room there were men and women who were disciples of jesus christ there were men and women who were filled with the holy spirit that day as the promised holy excuse me holy spirit came but again hopefully you can see what he's doing apples and oranges has nothing to do with does not speak to the issue of um ecclesiology how churches are organized and function uh, as the body of christ uh, Go to Timothy, where Paul wrote to Timothy. He outlined one of the aspects of our ecclesiology as it relates to how churches ought to be organized and function. And the role of those who were to be the under-shepherd, the pastor, elder deacon, was specifically and explicitly stated in that passage that that was held for men. And so again, apples and oranges. And, and again, he, he the parallel passage he uses is what Peter uses. I may have said Paul a while ago. It was Peter who was preaching. Uh, Peter uses uh, Joel chapter 2 in verse 28 because uh, that's what Peter is saying. This is the fulfillment of what Joel said that, hey, all uh, your disciples will be filled with the Holy Spirit and they will begin to prophesy. And hey, that, I, amen, that, that did happen and it still does happen in women's 
still are filled with the Spirit when they come to faith in Jesus Christ. Every believer is filled with the Spirit, and they ought to go about proclaiming the gospel and sharing their faith uh, with whomever it is that God gives them influence over, beginning in their home, their workplace, the marketplace, wherever it is they are, men and women, boys and girls that come to faith in Christ ought to be about sharing the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to all people groups in all nations. And so again, in my opinion, this apples and oranges, and uh, he's trying to make an argument somewhere that there's no argument to be made uh, for his newfound uh, theology, false theology, I should say. And then the, the third one and, and final one that he used was John chapter 20, verse 17. And it's when Mary Magdalene, uh, you know, the women went to the tomb first, the empty tomb uh, of, or the tomb of Jesus. They, they didn't anticipate it being empty. Uh, they went there to anoint him uh, on that Sunday because they didn't have time to do it on the Sabbath because the Sabbath was coming when he was buried on Friday. The Sabbath was upon them, so they couldn't do it. And so they went early that morning to go to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus for burial. And when they got there, the tomb was open, stone was rolled away, and they were looking for him. And they supposed that his body had been stolen and been taken somewhere. And uh, then Jesus came, and they didn't recognize him at first, and they thought he was the gardener. And they say to the guard, they say to what, whom, who they believe is the gardener, uh, where have you put him? That's all we want to know. Just let us know what you did with the body, and we will go and prepare it as we came to do. And then Jesus spoke her name, and upon speaking her name, he recognized who he was. Uh, and you know the rest of the story if you are a student of the Bible. But in this dialogue, Jesus uh, sends Mary to go and tell the rest of the disciples uh, what they had seen, what, what ha they had experienced with the risen Christ. And so Warren uses that text to say that Jesus chose the, a woman as the first preacher of the gospel. And in one sense, that is true. He says to this woman, go and tell them, uh, you know, what has happened and where to go. And ultimately, he's going to reveal himself to them. And so in that sense, she proclaimed the resurrection of Christ to the rest of the disciples. But again, I hope you can see what he is doing it is apples and oranges because it has nothing to do with the explicit, you know, passage that Paul writes to Timothy as it relates to the office of elder, bishop, presbyter, whatever term you want to put there. We choose to use pastor in Southern Baptist circles. It has nothing to do with that explicit teaching in the scripture. And so when someone is doing this, and again, Rick Warren has done gangbusters more probably for for the kingdom than than I may ever do in my lifetime. And so, you know, give him credit where credit is due in those places. But when he errs, just like when I err, call me on the carpet on my error. Because, you know, one of the things he states in this in this interview is that hey we we can we can debate over things like eschatology so why not debate on things like this 
Well, again, it's apples and oranges. Why? Because eschatology is somewhat ambiguous when you read the book of Revelation. And uh, if anyone says to you they understand it exactly and they have the, you know, they have the end all be all of all knowledge about eschatology and how things are going to end, then they are deceived themselves because that has been debated throughout the centuries. And again, that is different than this explicit text that Paul gave to Timothy as it relates to this office of elder, bishop, pastor of the church and who can and cannot have that office. And then he talks about we need to be we need to be. Uh, kicking people out for sin, not over this issue, to paraphrase what he says in this interview. Well, is it not sinful when you take an explicit passage of scripture that there really is very little ambiguity about as it relates to this office, uh, this office of leadership? that Paul outlines for Timothy as it relates to the church. Is it not sinful when we violate the scripture in those areas? And again, I, I know when this comes when this comes out, it sounds like, hey, you guys just hate women. No, we do not hate. Hey, I married one. I have four daughters. I love women, right? I have uh, a granddaughter and one on the way, two granddaughters, one here with us, one in heaven and one on the way. So no, I do not hate, uh, I do not hate women. And I think, hey, if it were not for women, there would be a lot of churches that would have already folded and closed the doors because women do a lot for the kingdom of God and they use their gifts and their talents for the kingdom of God and they ought to use their gifts and their talents for the kingdom of God. They ought to be, if they're able to teach, they ought to be teaching. If they're able, uh, you know, to to, to lead, they ought to be leading, uh, to use the language that Rick Warren uses uh, for women. They ought to be using whatever gift it is that God has granted them. But that does not mean that they can be placed in this office of pastor, elder, bishop, because the Bible expressly states who that office is for. And again, we can talk about this later, and I could go on all afternoon talking about this, I guess. But the reality is it's not that we are against women and what women do. Praise God for women and the role that God has given them and how he uses them. And may they continue to be used by the Lord in whatever capacity God gifts them. But we still have to be true to Scripture. Even if, you know, we, we don't necessarily understand why God does a lot of things or uh, understand exactly uh, everything we need to know about it, God has stated specifically uh, on this particular subject without question in my mind uh, who it is that can hold those roles. Now, are there, are, are, are there men in these roles that are not qualified? Absolutely there are. And what does that say? That says we need to make sure as uh, believers, as members of the body of Christ, that we take seriously our role in vetting and ordaining and calling these people to be in these roles of leadership because there are a lot of men who should not be in the position of pastor of any church. 
And so we need to take that role seriously. The problem is we, we, we all too often don't take a whole lot of things seriously enough as it relates to the church and uh, how we ought to function and how we ought to minister and how we ought to bring glory and honor to Christ in the way we conduct ourselves as believers uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. But anyway, uh, to, to cut this short, <laughs> I don't even know how long I've gone, but probably way too long. But to cut this short and, and bring this to an end, listen, Rick Warren is completely and absolutely grasping for straws to validate false theologies, caving into the spirit of this age like so many others are, just like Russell Moore, Russell Moore, Southern Baptist, in a leadership role, but he is going down the slippery slope of wokeism and bowing down to the spirit of this age. And you and I, as believers in Christ, must come to the place where we decide we're going to stand firm on the truth of God's word, no matter the cost. And the the longer that we live and the longer that the Lord tarries, if the world continues in the way that it's going, it's going to be more and more difficult for you to stand without being um, accused of being a bigot or someone who's filled with hate. Uh, and I'm sure there are people out there who may hear this or look at me and say, hey, you, you're a hater. You're talking, you have hate speech. You hate women. It has nothing to do with that. I love women. Right. But I love the Lord and I love the Lord's word. And my heart is to be true to his word. No matter how I feel, um, it is to be true to his word because he sets the standards, not me. And so uh, I think that we, we need to uh, call out those who are in blatant error and even more than that, those who have the kinds of platforms that these people do to lead millions of people astray. So let us be the voice of reason uh, as the Lord gives us opportunity. And if you have other questions uh, that you would like us to deal with and talk about, uh, please send them to me. Send them in, put them in the comments. Uh, send me a message on Facebook or if you follow me on Twitter, tweet me something, uh, wherever it is. If you know my email and my phone number, text me, call me, uh, send me an email. We'd be glad to deal with these uh, topics on Theological Thursday and, and we'll try to keep Sunday dealing with Bible studies going systematically through God's word. And so Lord willing, we'll do that again Sunday. We'll put our sermon up from Romans this coming Sunday, and we will be back in uh, the book of Revelation chapter 15. I believe that we're up to now in the book of Revelation on Sunday night. So I hope this has been a blessing for you and encouragement and help. And uh, until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you.